Well, good morning, church. About 10 days ago, on Thursday the 11th at 1.45am, a little baby girl was born on the other side of the world, not in Waitati, but on the other side of the world, to parents Hannah and Ben, and her name was Abigail Grace. And according to her grandmother, who's a friend of Mary and I, she, Abby, is a beautiful chubby babe with a squash nose, and every parent and every grandparent knows that every child is a miracle. Every birth of a child is a miracle. But this particular arrival was extraordinary. Abby was baptized in the first uh, hour of her life, and her parents declared faith commitments on her behalf. She was saved. She had three and a half precious hours with her mum and dad, and then she was called home to be with her lords. Hannah and Ben then took Abby's little body, took her to a children's hospice in London. They bathed her, and now they prepare for her funeral on Friday, this coming Friday. Abby was born with a rare but not uncommon condition of anencephaly, which means she's a little baby that was born without a fully functioning brain. And when parents have this journey, this, this tough, tough journey, they inevitably ask the question, why would God create this beautiful little babe for a mother to carry her for nine and a half, nine months, feeling this little child growing and kicking inside, only to be given three and a half hours in this life to carry the little child before she died? Well, last week, Christopher passionately and powerfully reminded us of the reality of death, and he challenged and encouraged us to view life and death through the lens of the gospel, and that's what we're called to do. How do we face the tragedy or the death of a child, as I know some of you have had to face, when all that promise, all that potential is taken from us? Some of the hardest funerals I've ever had to take are the funerals of a stillborn child. I remember well in Papakura, uh, the very first funeral that I had to take, and the mother of this stillborn child happened to be a midwife. She knew exactly what had to happen. She knew all the care that had to be provided, but this little one, the umbilical cord went round his neck, and he was born uh, as a stillborn child. Around that time, Natalie Grant's song, Held, came out, and the profound words uh, of that song were a great, great encouragement for the mother. The words in the song says, this is what it means to be held, how it feels when the sacred is torn from your life and you survive. This is what it means to be loved and to know that the promise was when everything fell, we'd be held. Let's pause for prayer as we listen to the words of Scripture that have been read to us. Heavenly Father, as we gather this morning, we confess our creaturely ignorance to your sovereign will. Your word says we know in part, and today we ask, O Lord, that you would humble our proud hearts, you would open our eyes of faith, you would strengthen our timid hearts, that we might see you in all your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. 
So last week we heard the gospel reading read to us and we heard of Jesus being placed in the tomb. How he had been crucified alongside two criminals at noon, how the sun had stopped shining. We heard last week how Jesus had declared a word of forgiveness from the cross and then he cried out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirits. And he breathed his last. He was buried in the tomb by one of the Jewish council leaders, Joseph. Luke records for us that Joseph was a man who didn't agree with the decision of the council, and he had prepared a tomb, and he was the one who laid Jesus in the tomb. The last few verses that we had read last week in Luke 23 focus on the woman, and I want to just read those before we jump into Luke 24. Verse 55 in Luke 23 The woman who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. And then they went home and they prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandments. They rested on the Sabbath. Can you imagine those words, how how difficult it is when the sacred has been torn from your life and these women in obedience to the commands of Moses waited from Friday night until Sunday morning before they went to the tomb. All their hopes were dashed. All their dreams had been broken. They had tasted a love from this man, Jesus, who they'd been walking with for a number of years, and now all was taken from them. Can you imagine how they were feeling as they went to the tomb on that Sunday morning? These women believe that death is the end. These women are believing that Jesus has been taken from them and has gone. To believe that death is the end is to rob yourself of hope. And as scripture reminds us, the absence of hope makes the heart grow sick. I wonder this morning, as you gather, how much hope you gather in your hearts. How much hope is in your heart this morning? You see, these women had seen Jesus beaten, they'd seen him mocked, they'd seen him nailed to the cross, and now they're believing that God's judgment, God's wrath, has laid on Jesus. And this must be the end. The three-year adventure of miracles, of teaching, of love, this transforming love that they had experienced has now been ripped from their lives, and they believe this is the end. We know that they believe it is the end because of what they're about They've brought the spices, they've brought the perfume to mask the smell of decay. They are preparing Jesus for death and his descent into the realm of the dead. This is final, this is brutal, Jesus is dead. And yet, they are waiting, they are waiting. And so we read in verse 1 of 24, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the woman took the spices They had prepared and they went to the tomb and they found that the stone was rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. They were preparing the spices to prepare Jesus' body for the realm of the dead. They are basically letting go of Jesus at this point as they go to the tomb, ready to say their final farewell. It's gone. It's over. Now, In these first 12 verses of Luke 24, 
Luke records three different groups of people. He describes these women, he describes two men, and then he talks about the 11 apostles, and then Peter makes a significant uh, entry onto the stage in Luke's gospel. Now, if these women, if their only task that they had been ordained to do was to prepare Jesus' body for death with the spices and the perfume, I doubt whether they would have been recorded in the Scriptures, if that was the only task that they were called to do. But Luke records something far, far more significant is about to unfold. Luke records that these women have a responsibility far, far greater than just preparing a body for death. Because quite literally, these women become the first evangelists in the early church. These women have a message to go and share, and they become the first evangelists of the church. And according to Luke, they do it by faith. According to Luke, they do it on the word of the testimony of two men who they encounter at the tomb. In the other Gospels, we read of an encounter that the women have with the risen Jesus, but this morning, Let's just stay with what Luke records for us in the text. The women are listed in verse 10. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and others. Now, already Luke has recorded their obedience. Remember, he has recorded that they wait from Friday night all through the Sabbath until Sunday morning. They are resting in obedience to the Mosaic law. They are waiting And so he draws out their obedience to the law, and now Luke draws out their faith as the words unfold. Look at verse 4. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And then they remembered his words. Something triggered as they heard these gleaming men record and recount Jesus' words. Now Luke simply describes these two individuals as men in rather shiny clothes. Their clothes are radiating light lightning, but later on he describes them as angels. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Literally, he has been raised, the text says. Mosaic law states that on the testimony of two or three witnesses, truth is established. And here we have two witnesses proclaiming a truth, the defining truth of our faith. The truth established here is not that Jesus overcame death. The truth that these witnesses testify to is that he has been raised from life to death. He has been raised. The angels remind the woman of what Jesus told them in verse 7, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Now, this is a very concise articulation of the gospel. With all the good news, 
upon which all our hope is based, the hope that death is not the end. And so the women go. They go back to the 11. They go back to the apostles, and they share this euangelion, this gospel, this good news. But the reception is not that bright. The reception to these early evangelists, and for those of you who have been out on the campus and have had an experience of witnessing and getting a bit of a lukewarm response, well, that has been the case since the earliest times. Look at verse 9 and following. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary and the mother of James and the others with them who told this to the apostles and listen, but they did not believe the woman because their words seemed to them like nonsense. The response was worse than lukewarm. The eleven apostles are doubting. These words seem like nonsense to them. How that must have felt for the woman as they shared to them. But Peter, God bless Peter. He has faith enough to get up and go and see for himself. Peter sees the strips as he goes to the tomb. Look at verse 12. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. And he went away wondering to himself, what's happened? What's happened? He went away wondering. Six days before Jesus went to the cross, some people came to him, and it's recorded in John 12. And they said, no, they came to a disciple. They came to Philip, and they said, sir, we would like to see Jesus. And Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life, John 12. Now, in this articulation, Jesus is communicating two truths. Firstly, he is communicating the spiritual truth that is true of all of the natural world and it is especially true of our spiritual world that something has to die for it to multiply and have the impact that it has been designed for. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The spiritual truth that things have to die to be reborn stronger. I've seen this many times. In my own life, in my own ministry, I've seen this worked out to be true. Significantly twice in my ordained ministry. My ordained ministry has had to come to an end to die, spiritually speaking, for it to be reborn stronger. In 2005, when I was called from Papakura to St. Matthew's to serve in Dunedin, and I remember the evening communicating to my elders that I believe God was calling me to cease my ministry here in Papakura and come down to Dunedin. And it felt a bit like I was announcing a death uh, when I looked at the, the faces around the room. But it was spiritually true. Something had to die in my ministry in Auckland for it to be reborn in Dunedin. 
two years ago when God called us out of St. Matthew's to establish Hope Church. Something had to die for it to be reborn more strong than it was. And now Hope Church is facing a resurrection moment as we wait and pray like those first women were waiting and praying. So that's the first thing that Jesus is communicating in John 12 there, that things have to die for them to be spiritually reborn and multiply. He's speaking metaphorically, but he's also speaking literally. He's speaking literally about his own life. He was communicating what would take place in his own life and ministry, that he must die, he must fall to the ground, that his ministry could multiply exponentially, going from 11 doubting apostles to 2 billion followers and growing. So what was it in this motley band of grieving disciples that transformed them into the single biggest movement that the world has known? What transformed those 11 doubting apostles into the single biggest movement the world has ever known? Was it their care for the poor? Was it their love for their neighbor? Was it their courage in the face of persecution? As important as all of those things are, I want to suggest this morning, the thing that transformed those 11 doubting apostles was resurrection hope. A resurrection hope that transforms everything. The woman had faith to see Jesus. Not with their physical sight, Luke records, but with their eyes of faith. They had heard the testimony of the two angels, and they had believed. In Ephesians 1, Paul prays this incredible prayer, and I'm going to pray it for you this morning. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but in the one to come, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Paul prays, and I pray this morning, that you will receive a spirit of revelation where God, the heavenly Father, places in you by the same power that he raised Jesus from the dead, a hope that you will walk in that resurrection power. That's my prayer for you this morning. The woman walked in faith. They had faith to see Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, and so they went and shared this gospel good news. Secondly, the woman were obedient. The woman waited and they rested. From Friday nights, with all the yearning, with all their grief, with all their hearts, I'm sure they just wanted to go and see their beloved Jesus, and they waited in obedience. They waited and they rested. But they also worked. They gathered what God had given to them. They gathered the spices, they gathered the perfumes, and they went 
and they prepared the body of Christ. And thirdly, they showed up. They didn't stay at home. They didn't sleep in. They showed up on that first Sunday because they were obedient to the Word of God. So these women were full of faith. These women were full of obedience. But significantly and supremely, these women had resurrection hope. And this was what transformed the disciples. On Friday, as I mentioned, Ben and Hannah will be preparing to bury their little baby, Abby. They're grieving as grieve they must. I know their grandparents are grieving as well. Last night, I received an email from their granddad, and he said the following. He said, Hannah and Ben have been given a particular cross to bear, to witness to Christ, and it's been hard. It's been a hard one for them. And then Eric went on to say, say, as so often is the case, the closer you get to the end of yourself, the more fiercely burns the love of God and Christ. It makes so much sense of Jesus' call to find life by losing it, and it also explains why so many flee God's love. He testifies to the fire of God's love. And as we get closer and closer to the fire of God's love, sometimes people find the intensity of that love just too intense and they walk away. Don't let that be you. Don't let that be you this morning. Ben and Hannah baptized little Abby in the faith of Christ because they know that Abby's ultimate home was not this earth, that Abby's ultimate home was to be called home in glory with her Lord Jesus. And that's true for each and every one of us, that this world, this earth is not our ultimate home, that this world is a world that we are passing through until we meet Christ in all his glory, the risen Lord in whose name we meet this morning. God is preparing a place in eternity for you and I, just as sure as he was for Abby, where there is no more crying, no more tears, no more sickness, and significantly no more death. And that's the hope in which we gather this morning, a resurrection hope. Do you share that hope this morning? Are you living your life in the light of this resurrection hope? Tim Keller, who was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer last year, recently said, the only way I could face the future is because I believed in the resurrection. Do you believe in the resurrection this morning? You know, we can place our faith in many, many different areas. The world will peddle many different options to place your hope in. Hope in a vaccine, hope in a travel bubble, hope in a good paying job. Hope in your bank balance, as significant and as good as all these things might be, our hope does not rest on those things. There is only one basis for eternal hope, the resurrection of Jesus from death to life. Our Lord has been raised from death to life, and because he lives, we have hope in our hearts. You may not see Jesus with your eyes, you may be struggling right now this morning, struggling with lost dreams, with a sense of lost hope, 
with all the promise and all the dreams and all the visions, and somehow they may have been slipping away from you this morning, I want to encourage you to put your hope in one place and in one person, in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe the testimony of the Word of God. Believe my testimony and allow the Holy Spirit this morning to confirm that testimony. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come in glory. Let's bow our heads and our hearts in prayer. Father, as we gather in your name this morning, as we reflect again on that first Sunday, the very first Sunday, as those women waited and prayed, and as they went to the tomb and they found it empty, we thank you for reminding us this morning that that same power in which you raised Jesus, your beloved Son, the Lord Jesus, from death to life, you can now raise us into a resurrection life that we might be with you in eternity starting today. We thank you, Lord, that that same power, the power of your Spirit is at work in your church and can be in work in our individual lives if we have the eyes of faith to see you this morning. Lord, grant us, grant us those eyes that our, our eyes of faith might be open to see you, Jesus. We would say like that, that first Greek in John 12, Sir, we want to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. So Lord, as we gather this morning, would you pour your spirit into our hearts afresh that we might know the resurrection hope, that we might overflow with that hope, that this week as we go about the week that lies before us, we might walk in the truth that you have conquered death and that nothing, nothing can touch us because of that resurrection hope that we carry. Lord, fill us afresh with that hope we pray this day in Jesus' name. Amen.